for those of you that don't know, two of my first jobs uh, were in the service industry. Now, I come from a family of chefs, so it made a ton of sense for um, my first real job to be a busser in a restaurant. I believe that everybody at one point in their life should work in a restaurant. You're going to eat there. You're going to spend a lot of time there. You probably should know how to be on the other side of it. So that was my first job. Um, what I would do, go around, clean up other people's garbage, clean up other people's leftovers, and throw it away. Not the highest job on our culture's social hierarchy. Another job early on in our marriage was I was a caddy, so a golf caddy. I carried people's golf clubs down at Chambers Bay the first year it opened. I got to play there once. Golf nerds will love that. But once again, carrying people's golf clubs is not too high on people's social hierarchy. But it was interesting. At both of these places, I found a real striking similarity. Now, like I said, these aren't really high on like, oh man, I want to grow up. When I grow up, I want to be a caddy. Or I want to grow up, I want to be a busser. That's what I want to be. But even within the low end of the social hierarchy, they had created, for some of them, an opportunity within those circles, a system in which they were allowed to look down on other people. It, and if you think about it, this is something that runs true and that's prevalent throughout our present, but also our history. And in many ways, it makes sense. And I believe there's a variety of factors. If you think about it, we have to realize that we as humans are created in the image of a relational storytelling God. Now, according to the Bible, this means that we understand ourselves and we understand one another in light of who God is what his story is, and my relationship to other people. But because we are in a fallen, broken world, this way of understanding ourselves and our story is greatly broken. You can see history and presently how this has been distorted. What happens is now each tribe or community or group of people get to live by a specific story that provides them a quote-unquote truth that they get to live by. If a person lives according to that truth well, they are granted a type of status in that community. And once they get this status, they have this now increased inherent value and dignity. But because this is done by works, they now create a social hierarchy where they get to determine who is looked down upon, who is in versus who is out, who is us versus who is them. So those who are the them or the outs or the down tend to receive less dignity and value than those that have followed the quote truth. In essence, living according to the standards of a tribe gives status. And that status then gives permission to write off certain types of people. We see it play out historically. Let's think just a moment about economics. If the story is that those who are richer are wiser, and those who are richer are more blessed by God, then they, just by the fact that they have resources, have an increased status among the community. 
This results in dignity and value over other people, giving the right to look down upon the poor because they are less, quote, blessed or less, quote, wise than they are. If this is a well that the community continually drinks from, you can see why the poor are continually looked down upon, why they are on the outside, and uh, them needing to be dealt with rather than loved. And it's in the messiness of all these factors that we find our story today. Where is it that gives people dignity? What gives people value in their community? What are the social hierarchies that are the cultural norms of our day? Here, Jesus recognizes them, and he reveals to us this new set of norms for his kingdom. So, let's look today at John chapter 4. We're continuing a series that we're calling Reframing Jesus. We're wanting to get fresh portraits of the life and teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The last time we were together, we were in chapter 3, which introduced us to a guy named Nicodemus. Um, He was a Jewish leader. And I believe John is putting these stories together on purpose. So let's look at the differences between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. So first of all, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man. So in a patriarchal society, he was deemed just by his gender as more significant. And he therefore had more dignity than the woman. We also know that he was Jewish and she was a Samaritan. So at this point, there had been ethnic tensions for hundreds of years between these groups of people. The Samaritans were considered less than because they were mixed blood. They were Jews and pagans combined. And so the Jewish people now had a right to look down upon them because of this. They were seen as not as pure and less holy. So as a result, the Samaritans developed their own worship practices, scriptures, and temple for them to worship. Now, Nicodemus is also a leader of the Jewish people. So he's an insider with power and influence. She's an outsider. She's not a leader. He would have been seen as holy and deemed clean. She would have been deemed unclean. In fact, there's a saying in the Jewish tradition that says this, all the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle. In essence, what they would say is because a woman was on her period, was seen as ceremonially unclean, any woman would, that Samaritan would always be unclean in the eyes of Jewish people. So no matter when they saw her, they were automatically looked down upon, automatically cast out, and so much so that if he, a Jewish man were even to touch anything that this woman had touched, he would now be unclean and have to go through ceremonial purification in order to offer sacrifices to God. Okay? So he's learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She's unschooled, without influence, despised, outside, a moral outcast. But she's not just an outcast among the Jewish people. She's also an outcast among her own people. She comes to the scene at the sixth hour. In the scripture it says noon. Now typically women would go at the well at the cool parts of the day, either in the morning or in the evening, 
and they would go in groups together. But we find this woman at the heat of the day all by herself. For her to be at, there at this time, she was not part of the common group of women. She was our, not welcomed into her own tribe. Now, when it, it's not hard to imagine being her for a moment, okay? You can safely assume that she's in a hopeless state. Why? Well, not only, Jesus, we come to find out that at this point in her life, she's had five husbands. Now, most people, when it says that she's had five husbands, I've heard it said that she's, like, promiscuous, okay? That she's a whore, I've actually heard it said of this passage. That's flat-out wrong. Because women had no power to initiate divorce. So this woman had had five men say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Okay, pushed out. For whatever reason, they, the, men could have had the power to say, you know what? I like this prettier woman. I'm going to initiate divorce because I'm allowed to and go hook up with this prettier woman. So you can imagine five men saying this to this woman, alone in the middle of the day. Hopeless is an understatement. So I want you to think about your own story for a second. Where do you feel that you are, quote, less than? Where do you feel that you are despised or you're like an outsider looking in? Many of you know I've uh, been on a journey of a little bit of my own self-discovery and healing from my wounds in the last couple years. It started a couple years ago with a process that we called Strong Leader Cohort, um, where I started to get introduced to the areas of my own heart that I continually kept bumping into. And it was then I started this regular counseling with a good friend of mine. And so it was during these times that I started to uh, realize that I had a personal narrative or story. Remember, we're story formed, creating the image of uh, storytelling God. So I had this personal narrative that I believed to be true about myself that determined how I lived every day. And simply stated, it was this, is that I often think that people don't desire me, but that they just deal with me. That I'm not desired, I'm dealt with. If there's an opportunity, Everybody would like readily choose somebody else if they could. So if I received an invitation, it's not because I was wanted to be there. It wasn't me that they wanted. It was just somebody that they wanted. So I was always in my heart thinking I was second best. So I was an outsider. It, uh, it affected how I showed up for people. It, and it, it, I realized it was an undercurrent even and affected how I led. I was always an outsider that's never desired to be an insider. Now, this is just a small glimpse of what I think many of you have experienced. It may be dignity that's been robbed from you, looking, looked down upon as an outsider, less than. This is where this woman is, low status, outsider, undignity. And the question for us, for our time, is what brings wholeness to our lives? 
What dignifies us as human beings? What, what brings us from being less than to whatever it is that's our goal in our own hearts? And as the story goes, and for this woman, as a result of meeting Jesus, like her, we learn that our dignity and value are not given us by our story or our status, but they're given to us by our Savior. Your dignity that may have been taken from you for whatever reason is restored by Jesus, and your value is not in your status. It's given to you by him. And here's how it plays out for this woman. And it's this threefold process that um, lays itself out in the story. First of all, how, how does she receive dignity? The first thing is she meets Jesus. She meets Jesus. And she meets him as the giver of life. Now, this is something that Jesus does that's the first time he does at any point in this passage. So she's desiring water, right? Don't mind if I do. Now he offers water that makes her never thirsty again. You can imagine, like if anybody's a runner here, which I'm not, so I'm just gonna use my imagination along with my other non-runner friends. You can imagine if you were a runner, you kinda get thirsty, right? Am I right? Like, yeah, okay. I'm a golfer, I don't run, I walk everywhere. It's way easier. So you get thirsty. Imagine if you were offered something that was like a wellspring that you never run out of. It was always fulfilled. Of course she's going to want some of that. And so he says, hey, I'm the one that provides this living water. It's constant. It's fresh. It's flowing. And he as he reveals himself as the giver of this, he goes on to do something that he hasn't done at any point up in this, path, uh, in this book. And it goes to a conversation about who he is. Look at verse 25 and 26 again. Um, the, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am. Now, he, in the English, it says, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. But it actually literally just says, I am. Interesting, if you know your Bible, have you heard those three, two words before? I am, as we'll see throughout, and we see at the end of this passage, is the words that God gave to Moses when he revealed his very nature to them. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, you know that voice that Moses heard in the wilderness speaking in the burning bush? That's me. It's not just, I am the Messiah. It's, I am. That's Yahweh. He's, he's, if anybody says Jesus never claims to be God, open the book of John and wherever it says, I am, that's where he's doing it, right there. So what Jesus is doing here, he's revealing himself in the fullness of who he is, as he did for Moses and as he does for you and me. He's proclaiming the fullness of himself in that. But he's doing it in a socially outcast way. Who initiates this conversation? It's not her. He's the one that's pursuing her. Like, don't miss this. Social no norms were broken. The social hierarchy of the day was completely bypassed. 
What would have been scandalous for Jesus is fine, for, excuse me, scandalous for a Jewish man is fine for Jesus because he is the I am. He is the holy one. He's not defiled by unholy things. Rather, his holiness makes them holy. I mean, John's already told us he's the fullness of God in physical form. All of God's glory is found where? In the person of Jesus. And so what he's doing here, he's revealing all that to this woman who's a social outcast. He hasn't told his disciples this yet. He hasn't told the Jewish leaders this yet. He's telling the first time he claims to be the Messiah is to an outcast Samaritan woman. Like, he, he's a pursuing God. He breaks down the norms. He doesn't care about what our hierarchies are. What he's doing is he wants people to meet him and know him in the fullness of who he is. And he does it by pursuing. She's not asking. She didn't go to the well to find Jesus. She wasn't even looking for the Messiah. She, but she got more than she expected. Because she got God incarnate. Her first step in receiving the fullness of dignity that was robbed of her is by meeting Jesus in the fullness of who he is. But, for it, but it doesn't stop there. She, she's then transformed or she's changed by Jesus. If living water reveals the meeting the, the Jesus in his fullness, then it's worship is when we are changed by him. Now, if you think about it, being changed by Jesus is very much in line of what we see through, of God throughout the Bible. It's a natural outcome of meeting him. If you meet him, you're changed by him. So think through all the characters of the Bible and how they are changed by meeting God or his people. You have Rahab, a prostitute, who helps God's people and through them are brought from the outside into the inside. She, to the point where Rahab is one of the people who's named in the lineage of Jesus. David, whose father doesn't even think about him as somebody who could potentially be king, has to send somebody to go get him to bring him back. He ends up being anointed as the king. The weakling, the shepherd, the runt is now the anointed king. Bathsheba, taken advantage of by a powerful king whose husband is murdered as part of a cover-up. She, too, has her life changed to the point where she, like Rahab, is also included in the lineage of Jesus. Over and over again, we see when people meet Jesus... They don't stay the same. Yeah. My fear is that we, in our culture, we can say we've met him, but we're never changed by him. We say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've met him, but I'm the same as I was five years from ago. That, oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah, but we haven't really, truly been changed by him. This passage also, and I don't have time to go into the fullness of this, and I wish I did, but 
the context of this transformation, Jesus goes on to say that it happens as a, in essence, as a result of, or in the life of worship. They were fighting about where they were supposed to worship. That's the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews. But Jesus goes to say how one worships is more important than where one worships. How we worship is determined by who we worship. We don't worship at a temple. We sing here. And I I know a lot of times we conflate worship with music. And let me just say, I am so thankful. It's so good to have Brandon and Julie and Darian up together. You guys don't know how much. It's been, what, 10 years? 12 years since this has happened. So it's been, it's a huge treat that we get that. And music does something to our hearts that I believe very, very little else can. Even if you're not a musician, some, we tend to remember things better by music. There's something that happens in the depths of our souls that me getting up here talking to you cannot do. Okay? Music has the power to do that. Okay? But I don't want to limit worship to only music. I want to look at worship biblically from how we give honor to God. So how we give honor to God, both in song and by eating on Tuesday afternoons when we're grumpy, can be worship. Okay? So it says to do it in spirit and truth. It says in verse 23 and 24, summarize it this way. How is she changed? She's she's now given an invitation to worship. She's now given an invitation not just to believe rightly about Jesus, but now live differently because of him. Okay? So, and where do we see her changed? Like, what, how can I look at this passage and say, I know that she's a different person because she's met Jesus? This is the third part of it. She meets him. She's given her, after her dignity stripped away, but she's changed by him. And then it's seen in verses 39 through 42. She witnesses by voluntarily sharing other, this to others. Let's read again 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that I believe, we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this truly the Savior of the world. So the one that was an outsider, that's been pursued by Jesus, that's been transformed by Jesus, is now the one pursuing other people. So think about it. This all has to go back to dignity for her. Her lack of dignity, of personal value, of status led her to seclude herself from others. And now we see her not secluding herself, but putting herself out there for other people. She's not hiding anymore. She's now the one pursuing. She's not the one hidden away from other people. She's now the one voluntarily sharing All that has been done in her life. What does it say? He told me everything I have ever done. I wonder if we don't spontaneously share the gospel because we don't realize how much we have been pursued by God. 
that we have been trans and we aren't seeing or we haven't realized the transformation he's making in our lives. I think what hinders us is we feel like we don't have the right answers, that we have to have it all figured out. But brothers and sisters, we don't need to have all the right answers to share the gospel. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to be the greatest apologist or evangelist or I'm not like this one. That's not what's happening here. What does she share with these people? What Jesus has done in her life. That simple. Okay? Not complicated. Now, he uses often what's been broken within us, what's changed in us, as a means by which we can help other people be comforted. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says this. He, um, so he's giving this prayer. God, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Okay, think of your own life for a second. Think of the area that you are most embarrassed by or that you feel the most shame around. The thing that would lead you to hide from others in your community that would lead you to be, walk out a mile away to get water in the heat of the day so you didn't have to be with other people. Think of that. Think of the areas that you've been outcasted. This is where the power of the gospel is more powerful than any other story you can I hear. The gospel has the power not just to forgive those areas, but to transform them. Where they are no longer the most shameful or saddest part of your life. Notice what happens to this woman. The most shameful and the saddest becomes what she readily shares. That does not happen unless she's transformed in the midst of it. We comfort others with what? The comfort we first receive. Well, I, I don't know what that person's going through. I don't get it. The passage doesn't say that we will comfort them with those in similar afflictions. It doesn't say, oh, you can only help people and comfort people or share the news with people that are same as you, that have been hurt by you. No, it says the, with your affliction, you're comforted so that you can comfort people in any affliction. So if our transformation in the gospel, the news that Jesus himself, who is fully God and fully man, pursued you, loves you, died for you, forgives you, cleanses you, makes you holy, trades himself for you on the cross... Okay? The one whose blood was shed, the Holy One of God, so that you can be no longer an outsider, but now an insider, whose dignity was full before the cross, but who hung there shamed, naked in front of all these people, whose dignity was stripped from him. The dignity that was taken from you, Jesus took that on the cross for you. Feel that, brothers and sisters. Don't think that. Hear that. The depth to which you have been pursued by God is more profound than we'll ever realize. 
And that's the news that's changing us. That's the news that's good. That's the news that this woman hears as she's changed by him, as she's being changed by him. Multiplication happens when we meet Jesus and we're changed by him. This is discipleship. So the question is, have you met Jesus? Are you changed by Jesus and are you being changed by him? And is that naturally leading you to share him with others? Where is your dignity and status found? Today is an invitation to decide that it's found in him and not in your place in life or in society. It's a decision that you and I have to make. Are we willing to continually submit to Jesus' loving, empowering lordship? Are we willing to be changed by him? Are we willing to put ourselves in places like nourishing practices, like our DNA groups, like our missional communities, like life on mission, where we can continually have our own brokenness revealed so that we could be transformed and be a comfort to other people? Maybe you need to meet Jesus for the first time. Maybe you need to recommit to the transformation that he offers you in your life. But I believe for many of us, it's not just that, because we as a church have been rightly focusing on that for a while. I think for many of us, it's this third part. It's not just being changed by him, but it's sharing with others how he's changing us. Willingly, voluntarily, pursuing other people. I've been accused of seeing mission in every text. I can't not see it here. I mean, I didn't even get to the harvest and reaping part. It's just there, okay? But our dignity and value is not given to you by your story or status. It's given by Jesus who meets you, who's transforming you. And it's such good news that we want to share it with others.